you have a Bible, if you have a Bible, turn it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark chapter 3. And you know, stories like the, uh, the, the one in our kids' message this morning, you're like, that sounds weird. You can always go and read it yourself. Zechariah is a great book of the Bible and uh, one that is just full of, uh, really, there's, there's a lot of stuff about Jesus in there. So if you're, if you're looking for a part of the Bible to read, actually, if you've never read the Bible before, start with something like the Gospel of Mark. But then if, if you've read a little bit of the Bible and you're looking for something to read, Zechariah, you could do a lot worse. So, well, it's a freebie there. Mark chapter 3. Have you ever met someone and they told you something and you just go, I do not believe this person? You ever met something like that? I remember once having a conversation with a young man and, and a friend of mine who's my age and I were talking to this guy and he was about 16 years old. And it's important for you to know for the purpose of this story that my friend is a very experienced hunter. And he goes out with a bow and arrow and hunts elk. That's, that's the kind of guy that he is. And it's important for you to understand this, partially because I am not that guy and partially because of the conversation. So this young 16-year-old guy, and we were kind of talking about like life goals. And he said that his goal in life, if he had one goal in life, was that he was going to go to Alaska and he was going to hunt and kill a Kodiak bear. It's the largest bear in the world. Have you ever been to the zoo and seen the paws on one of these things? And he said, I'm going to go to Alaska, and I'm going to hunt, and I'm going to kill a Kodiak bear. And my friend, who's an experienced hunter, he said, have you ever hunted anything before? No. Maybe you should start with something smaller like a squirrel or a rabbit, something that doesn't, something that doesn't hunt you back. No, I'm going to do it. I can tell you that conversation happened about 10 years ago, and that guy will never, has never, and will never go and hunt a Kodiak bear. Probably better for him and the bear when you think about it. But in that moment, in that conversation, there was no way that I believed him. There was nothing about his life up to that point that would make you think that that was a real possibility. Okay? Now, there are people in this room that if they told me they were going to go hunt a bear, I'd believe them. I have a friend who if he told me that he was going to go climb Mount Everest, I'd have no trouble believing it because he climbs mountains. But if, if somebody came up and said, like, I'm going to do this amazing thing, I'd say, well, look, I'll believe it when I see it. And that's kind of where we're at this morning. There are people that say things like, I want to experience God. I want God to work in my life. And yet, if we're honest, there's nothing in their life that says that's true. Does that mean that God can't work in their lives? Well, of course not. God can do whatever he wants to do. But the question is, do we actually want God to work in our lives? A lot of people say that they do, 
But like that, that kid saying, I want to go hunt a Kodiak bear. It's like, yeah, sure. You know, if I told you that in three months I'm going to go climb Mount Hood, mm, probably not. But my friend Rich, if he tells you that he's going to climb Mount Hood, well, it's like, yeah, he's done that a few times. Let's turn to Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And this is a whole series uh, we've been through the last couple months, really, about how Jesus is, is ministering in the northern part of Israel in the Galilee. And it says, another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. If you want God to work in your life, and I believe that if you would ask the Pharisees, do you want God to work in your life? Do you want God to bless your life? Do you want God to change or fix the things that need fixing? Do you want to see the power of God in your world? I think they would have said yes. But step one to seeing God actually work in your life is stop opposing him. Stop opposing Jesus. It's the same thing. Jesus is God. And if you oppose the work of Jesus in your life or in your world, then you oppose the work of God. So if you say, I want God to work in my life, I don't believe you. Nor would anyone else. So Jesus, I think the, the first thing to note here is that it says another time Jesus went into the synagogue. That was their church. Jesus was a church-going man. Is there a conflict of interest that the, you know, people say that, well, you know, of course the pastor is going to say everybody should go to church. Well, first of all, I'm always shocked. I have had people be offended that, that a pastor would suggest that they should go to church. Why are you shocked about this? Like, if there is a conflict of interest, then it's one that everybody understands. Yeah, that's just what pastors do. But that's like, if you think that there's a conflict of interest for me to say people should be part of a church family, that's like saying there's a conflict of interest for a doctor to say, like, you should eat a balanced diet and take your vitamins and, you know. There, the, there's no conflict of interest for my doctor. Tell, I, I'm going to the doctors on Thursday. It's my yearly physical, you know. And there's no conflict of interest for my doctor to say, like, do healthy things. There's no conflict of interest for a Christian to say, if you want to be healthy spiritually, be at church. What, what I think has happened, this is a personal opinion, but I think it's true. What I think has happened is 
for years, and maybe this was true in your life and in your experience, and maybe this was true at some point in this church, there was a pressure, maybe we'd call it a legalism, you better be at church every Sunday. Oh, don't tell me you're one of those casual Christians that only goes to church every Sunday. Why aren't you at the midweek? Why aren't you at the prayer meeting or the Sunday night or whatever it is that we have? And so there was this pressure, there was this burden, there was this legalism. And then we realized, hey, you know what? We have gone really extreme here. Maybe there should be some grace. And I don't, if you're, if you're not here on a Sunday morning, nobody's going, oh, Greg, Greg, why are you sinning and just not here every Sunday? No, nobody's doing that, right? But what happens is we go so far the other way, not Greg, but you know, we go so far the other way that then we think that there are things that are good and conducive and helpful for spiritual health. And then we, well, I don't need to do those things. Grace, it's all grace. Grace is not about us not being as healthy as we could be spiritually. That's not what grace is. The grace of God is not meant so that you or I would be weaker instead of stronger. And there are things, if, if I am not spending time with the Lord in personal prayer, the study of his word, in, in Christian community or fellowship, I will not be as healthy or as strong as I could be. And it's not the grace of God that I wouldn't be as healthy or as strong as I could be. It's the same for us, all of us. It's not the grace of God. Jesus was at church. And whether you're at this church or another church, every Christian should be part of a church family. Why well, I, I go to church out in the woods. I'll tell you what, one of my favorite things in the world to do is to go hiking. And you go and you see the beauty of God's creation and all that he has done. And yes, I'm there worshiping with you. But I'm not pretending that that's community. There's no squirrel that has ever come to me and said, Adam, this is what the Lord has to say. Now, could the Lord do that? Sure. Has he? Not yet. Chances are that if I am in a real, healthy church family situation, that is the most likely place that God is going to work in my life. And if Jesus is in the church, as well, you don't know my church background. I believe it. But if Jesus is here, this is where I want to be. The second thing I notice is that in verse 1, it says that he went to the synagogue and there was a man with a shriveled hand there. This man had a physical issue. A few weeks back, we read in Mark's gospel how Jesus went to synagogue and there was a man with an impure spirit. He had a spiritual health issue. The second thing that I noticed, first is that Jesus was a churchgoer. The second thing that I noticed was that the sick and the needy were also in the church. One of the big buzzwords that's going on in, in church circles these days is we've got to get outside of the four walls of the church. And I totally understand it. Because there are churches that have had a history of being sort of a Christian country club. We don't want to be that. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. We want to be a hospital, not a country club. Yes. But part of being a hospital church is to recognize that sometimes the sick and the needy are within our, our own 
four walls or within our community. If all of our focus on outreach is missions in another country and we forget about the sick and the needy here in our own community, in our own church family, I think we're missing the point. We, one of the reasons I believe that a church is so important for Christians, I have never known anyone who exists outside of the church of Jesus who is spiritually healthy for a long period of time. Can you, can you be spiritually healthy and not go to church for a month? Sure. But at some point, your spiritual health will decay. It will happen. And even somebody, I have a friend whose mom is sort of the exception. She's not part of a church family and she hasn't been for many years. She watches a church service online every Sunday. And she is, she's a woman who loves Jesus. And I have nothing, I have nothing but good things to say about this lady. Incredibly wonderful woman. But not only is she not as spiritually healthy or strong as she could be, and I think that's true, as much as I have nothing but good things to say about her. But there somewhere is a church community, a church family, where she could be helping others, where she could be imparting the things that the God has given her and blessing others with that. Because the sick and the needy aren't just outside of our walls, they're here with us. And some of us are more able to admit it than others, Right? But all of us need Jesus. Even if we're saved, even if our sins have been forgiven and we're going to heaven, all of us continually need God's work in our lives. Jesus comes to the synagogue and there's a man with a need. And it says that some people were just looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. I have found that that is very true still. There are people who are just waiting. They're just waiting. And the moment somebody sets a foot out of line, then they'll say, aha, I gotcha. Is it about what Jesus said? No. Is it about what Jesus did? No. But they don't like Jesus. So they're just waiting for a moment to accuse him. Now that's... That's never a good place to be, just intellectually, as human beings. We live in a world right now, it's a very divided time, and we live in a world where there are people who are just waiting to accuse in some way someone else. And there's no actual like conversation, nuance, thought behind it. It's just, you exist in a group that I don't like, so I'm just waiting for you to say something dumb, and then I'm going to accuse you. And it's interesting, I personally think that if I speak vaguely like this, that every group would say, oh, he's talking about me. Yeah, somebody is just waiting to accuse me. Whatever group you're in, right or left, up or down, north and south, old or young, everybody feels that way. But if we, I can't control what anybody else does, but if we are people who have the ability to say, I'm not just looking to accuse somebody, I think we'd be in a better place. I think we'd be helping to make North Clackamas, Southeast Portland, Oregon, the state of Oregon, we'd help it to make it a better place. 
But these guys are just waiting to accuse Jesus before he's even done anything. Because they've already made up their minds about Jesus. They have already shut off their thinking process. They have already rejected him in their hearts. They're just waiting to do it with their deeds. And Jesus sees this guy. And and if you're... One of the reasons why we have such advancement for people with disabilities is technology. Because through technology, people with disabilities can overcome incredible things. You think of you know guys like Stephen Hawking who were in the wheelchair, and, and, but then they have this thing where they can just slightly move their chin, or there's, there's things where somebody who's, who's paralyzed but this thing can sense movements in their eyes and they can type on a keyboard just by how they move their eyes. There's incredible technology out there that helps people overcome uh, disability and adversity. But if you live in, in a primitive agrarian culture, everything is about the manual labor that you can do to harvest food. And now you are basically living with one hand tied behind your back. The Pharisees do not care about the needs of this guy. This man all of a sudden has a full shot at life. He's no longer working with half. He's got wholeness to his body. And instead of being excited and ecstatic because they were already at a place of wanting to accuse, because they were already at a place of wanting to accuse, they wanted no part in what Jesus was doing. It's interesting to me, it says in verse 6 that the Pharisees went and began to plot with the Herodians. The only way I could describe this, it's not 100% accurate, but it's the best way for us to understand this. Imagine that what it's saying is the evangelical conservative Christians went out and plotted with the secular political liberals. I'm not saying I'm not trying to make an exact comparison. I'm just saying in Jesus's day, that's the kind of vibe it would have had. They go out and they plot with their bitterest rivals because they are so opposed to Jesus that they'll work with anybody to take him down. And it is an act of healing, an act of, of healing, of blessing, of restoration that causes them to start a murder plot. If you're filling in your notes, it's an act of healing that causes a murder plot. Don't be surprised, don't be surprised as people oppose Christians. I think sometimes Christians act like, what? How could you? How could you oppose the work of God? It's so good. Yes, and yet it still happens. I think I've shared this before, but if I haven't or I have, it's still applicable. But a kid that I knew as a youth group kid when I was a youth leader, and he was posting on Facebook about how we need to take away tax exemptions that churches and other nonprofit groups enjoy. We don't pay property tax on this property because we're considered a, a 501c3 nonprofit. And he said, if we just took that and started charging the church's property taxes... And, and I, I messaged him. I said, hey, you know, do you understand that 
churches, like I know there's like that one church somewhere in Texas that has a lot of money and the pastor flies a private jet or something. I'm told that that's real, but most churches don't have private jet kind of money. And your, I said to this guy, I said, your family was directly supported by the church multiple times as you went through a horrible season. But he had decided against the church already. And the good things that were happening didn't matter to him because he'd already made the decision. So I'm not surprised at how anybody acts towards the church. But if you want God to work in your life, the first step is to stop opposing Jesus. It's, it's amazing how people want the good things the church will do. <laughs> I have literally one day been in, in one meeting with the school district and another day been in another meeting with the school district. And in one hand, they want, uh, one hand wants us to help, which we're happy to do. And another hand doesn't want any part of us. You see what I'm, you see what I'm getting at? That they, there's this idea of opposition. Well, I don't, we don't want that. But that's what comes with Jesus working. Lives are changed, transformed. Families, individuals, neighborhoods are healed as God works. If you want God to work, stop opposing Jesus. Step two, recognize Jesus is the source of hope. So they're plotting to murder him. We're going to skip down to verse 20. We're going to look at verse 7 through 19 next week. But in verse 20, it says, Then Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So the crowd is so big and there's so many needs that they can't even take a lunch break. It's just nonstop ministry. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, said he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, for he is driving out demons. So they're saying, well, of course he can drive out a demon because he's working for the prince of demons. So it's like a con. Oh, yeah, here, you get driven out. Oh, okay, Jesus. Wink, wink, you know. Beelzebub sent you, huh? You know, okay, we can, we can do this. Oh, no, don't hurt us. That's what they're saying. And the teachers of the, uh, verse 23, so Jesus called them over to him and he began to speak in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand and his end has come. No one, verse 27, can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying, he, he has an impure spirit. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call to him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, hey, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother 
and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, here are my brothers and my mother. Whoever does the will, who, excuse me, verse 35, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. You want God to work in your life? Step one, stop opposing Jesus. Step two, you got to recognize Jesus as the source of hope. In verse 22, the Pharisees, they cannot accept Jesus. They have already rejected him. So then Jesus is healing people. Jesus is casting out impure spirits. Jesus is showing God's power. But they've already rejected him. And since they can't accept him, then they have to find a way to explain away the power of God. And so they say, well, he's doing this by the power of the devil. And then verse 23 through 29, Jesus goes through this whole thing. He said, a house divided against itself, a kingdom divided against itself will fall. He, he says, logically, think about this. Why would the devil have, if, if Jesus was in league with the devil, why would he have me healing people and fixing people's problems and taking away the, the foothold, the, the demonic foothold that is in this community? Why? And then he says this whole thing about the strong man. Now think about this. If you are a robber and you go into someone's house, they are going to fight back. And especially if they're strong, if they, if they have physical strength. And so he, Jesus is saying, if you go and you do that, what's the first thing you do? You incapacitate them. You tie them up. You mace them. Whatever you got to do, whatever, the, whatever the, the biblical version of mace is, which I would just imagine is a big club. But he's saying, if you're going to go rob somebody, you go and you tie them up first, and then you have free reign to take whatever you want. And Jesus is saying that he has come and he is binding the enemy. And he is the one who is basically shutting down the work of the enemy, so that God's work can be done. There is a lot of weird stuff in the church, in Christianity at large. There's some weird stuff out there. If you, uh, if you spend enough time watching Christian television, or even more so now if you watch Christian YouTube, you'll find it. There are weird things going on. And here's what I know. That if God is moving, even in some of the weirdest corners of the church, it's because of Jesus. If you're filling in your notes, if the hope of God is spreading, it is because of Jesus. And sometimes it's despite us. Amen? but it's because of Jesus. And we're really comfortable when Jesus works through somebody that we feel is safe or respectable. 
And we're really, really uncomfortable when Jesus works through somebody that we do not respect or we don't feel is safe. And yet God's doing what God wants to do. The Bible says that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And there are some foolish things being used by God. And yet he's moving. And if, if, if anything good is happening, it's because of Jesus. And I have zero interest in spending my whole life as a heresy hunter, as, as looking for the, you know. There, I, I have people that I love, Christians that I love, who feel like it's their whole life's calling to just be on constant lookout. Anything that's weird or a little wonky in the church, and it's like, boom, weirdness patrol. There's, you know, I had a friend, a roommate from, from college yesterday. He was posting this thing about how like there's satanic rituals going on at like Hillsong or something like that. It's like, what are you talking about? You're the weird one, man. <laughs> They're just Australian. You're the weird one. If, if anything good is happening, it's because of Jesus. I do think when we're talking about these things, some of us get really uncomfortable because we like the part of Christianity that has nothing to do with the supernatural. We like the part of Christianity that's about morals, about you know work ethic, responsibility. We love that part of Christianity. But any part of Christianity that's about God's Holy Spirit, casting out demons, miracles, we're very uncomfortable. We're cynical, whatever. And if you're that person, that's okay. You're not alone. There's plenty out there. But if we get uncomfortable and we say, well, how do I know whether something is God working through weird situations or awkward people or if it's just something that's totally off? I always say, look at the trajectory. Look at where this is going. It, if, if, if there's a, a Christian or a group of Christians that are just a little different, but God's working through them, and the trajectory you see is the love of God, I'm going to say God's working there. If the trajectory that we see is a building up of ego, of power, control, then it's possible that God is working despite all that, and it's possible that God worked at some previous time. But I'm just looking at the trajectory. What is, what is the long-term end of this? I know some people that just want to be so serious and passionate about following Jesus. But then if you kind of map out the trajectory of where they're going, it's just going to lead to arrogance and self-righteousness. And I know some people that they, they could do with a lot more Bible study. But they're so full of the love of God that when you map out their trajectory, you go, I think they're going to be okay. And I don't know if what I'm saying is resonating with anyone, but we can rec recognize that when we talk about these things, these are in the Bible. They're real things. They are real things that are out there whether we like it or not. And so how do you figure out what's the weirdness and what's not? Well, Jesus is saying, hey, do you see God at work? And if you want God to work in your life, sometimes you got to be okay with a little bit of weirdness. There was a blind man and Jesus told him to go wash in the River Jordan. 
We're okay with that one. There was another blind man that Jesus healed, but he didn't tell him to go wash in a river. Jesus spit in the ground and made mud and then wiped that mud in his eyes. I like that one a lot less. But Jesus did both of those things. And he's the source of our hope. It's interesting, in verse 29, he says, and I want to read this to say it correctly. I don't want to paraphrase this one because it's so important. But in verse 29, he says, actually, I'm going to go back to verse 28. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander that they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. If you want God to work in your life, then you have to recognize Jesus as the source of hope. Jesus can, will, and has forgiven every sin. There is no person in this room who has sinned so bad that God won't forgive them. There is no person in this room that has sinned so bad that the grace of God cannot cover it through what Jesus did on the cross. So what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? There's different opinions about this. I'm just going to tell you as best as I understand, reading this passage, reading other parts of the Bible, reading scholars and commentators, Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to not become a Christian. That Jesus said that God's Holy Spirit convicts the world of truth. God the Holy Spirit is the one who points us to God the Son, Jesus Christ, who makes a way to God the Father. God the Holy Spirit is the one who was saying to you, saying to me, Repent of your sins. Turn away from unrighteousness. Follow Jesus. And any of us who said, yes, I want Jesus. Any of us who say, I want Jesus, then just like Jesus said, all sin can be forgiven. Every slander, every time that we rejected him can be forgiven. But if you are here today and you have not recognized Jesus as the source of hope in your life, if, if you haven't become a Christian, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, if you haven't said, Jesus, forgive me of all sin, take my life, it's yours, I'm your servant, then that forgiveness isn't there for you. It's just not. It can be. A person has every chance in the world until they die. And then comes the judgment. And if you want God to work in your life, don't be surprised if he doesn't work in your life because you haven't given your life to him. Why isn't God doing X, Y, or Z? Have you surrendered your life to God? Have you accepted the free gift of forgiveness of your sins? If you haven't, don't be surprised. Well, I want God to work in my life. I'm a very spiritual person. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Well, I don't, I don't believe that then don't be surprised when God doesn't work in your life the way that you want him to. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject God's call to surrender your life to Jesus. That's the unpardonable sin. All sins will be forgiven to those who are in Christ. 
but anyone who rejects the free gift of Jesus as the Holy Spirit points us to him, to blaspheme, to slander, to insult, to reject the work of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the un unforgivable sin. But if you want God to work in your life, step three is to accept the messengers that God sends us. In verse 21, Jesus' family comes, and they hear that he is so busy that he's not taking a lunch break, and they say he's out of his mind. And if you're filling in your notes, Jesus' family wrote him off because he doesn't meet their expectations. They had expectations of him. He's going to take over the family business. He's going to be a good boy and stay around home. He's, if he is going to be some religious figure, he'll do it in a way that brings power to himself. Elsewhere in another gospel, one of Jesus's brothers say, hey, you need to go down to this festival in Jerusalem and really make yourself known. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm doing. You're trying to build a kingdom here on earth. I'm here for my father's heavenly kingdom. His family wrote Jesus off because he, he just didn't meet their expectations. We know that Jesus' brothers did not believe until after his resurrection. And in the New Testament, there's a, a book called James that was written by Jesus' half-brother James. There's a book called Jude, written by Jesus' half-brother Jude. But they didn't believe until after he had risen from the dead. It's interesting to me that right now, in this part of the gospel, Mary, his mother, didn't believe. That she came and said he's out of his mind. Now, if you, if you come from a Catholic background and believe that Mary never sinned, I don't know what you do with that. And I'm just going to let you hang with that one. So, sorry. We're gonna talk, there's a question about it in our um, sermon questions for the small groups. So, you know, you'll talk about it this week. But Jesus, not only is he, is he God, but he himself is God's messenger. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human, and he is the embodiment of God to humanity. And if you don't accept him, if you don't accept the messengers he sends, why would you expect God to work in your life? The number one, the biggest messenger God has sent in my life is my wife, Angie. No one speaks for God to me more often and more clearly than my wife does. And I, it's not a joke. Oh, well, of course you'd say that because, you know, that's not a joke. The Lord speaks to me through my wife all the time. The Lord speaks to me through other Christians that I'm in community and relationship with. There, there's all kinds of ways in which God has put messengers in my life. And if I reject the messengers that God sends in my world, then it's, I should not be surprised if I don't see God working in my life. It's, it's, like the, it's like the story of the guy who there was a flood and he climbs up on the roof of his house to get away from the floodwaters. And, 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 you know, there had first been the weatherman's warning. There's a flood coming. Get out. And he ignored it. And then somebody comes by in a boat and says, hey, I'm on a boat. Get in. And he says, no, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And then somebody comes by with a helicopter and says, we're going to lower you a rope, grab it, and we'll take you to safety. He says, no, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. 
and the floodwaters comes up and he's drowned. He's in heaven. And he says, God, why didn't you rescue me? And he says, I sent you the weatherman. I sent you the boat. I sent you the helicopter. What more did you want? And I think there are people for whom God could say, I sent you, a, I sent you your parents. Or parents, even worse, I sent you your kids. I sent you your spouse. I sent you your neighbor. I sent you the person that you're in a small group with. I sent you that pastor. I sent you that whatever it was. And if we reject the messengers that God's put in our life, I'm not talking about some weird cultish thing where you have to listen to everything I say, please. I'm saying that if God puts messengers in our lives and we say, well, I want God to work in my life, but we ignore his messengers. And as the band comes up, we take time to respond to God here at Faith on Hill. I believe that God speaks to us through the music, so he's spoken to us as, we, as we've sung together already. I believe God speaks to us through prayers. We prayed together, God speaks to us. I believe that God speaks through his word and sometimes even speaks through the preacher, that God has been speaking to us. And so now is a point where we respond. And we respond in three ways. We respond through an offering. And if you're visiting with us, you can just let the plate pass you by. This is a way that for people, this is our church family, that we support the work the Lord's doing here. And we worship him with our resources. We respond in singing of songs. And singing of songs isn't all that worship is. We worship God through the giving. We worship God through prayer. We worship God as we study his word. But we respond through the, the singing of, of songs of praise and worship. And we respond in prayer. And this is a time, if you're not singing one note, but you're on your, your knees, literally or metaphorically praying, this is a space for that. Because God's been speaking and now it's up to us to respond and say, yes, Lord, or Lord, show me how, or Lord, give me faith, or Lord, I want to become a Christian, forgive me, heal me. Let's respond to Jesus together.